0: Hi, and welcome to Ones and Twos, F.P.'s economics podcast. Every week we take a couple data points, use them to try to explain the world. I'm Cameron Abadi, F.P.'s deputy editor, with you in Berlin, Germany. As always, Adam Twos, F.P.'s economics columnist and Columbia University professor, is with us in New York. Hi, Adam. Hi, Cam. So this week we have one data point, and that is 278 million, which is the population of Indonesia. That makes it the third largest democracy in the world, which is especially relevant right now because Indonesia just held a presidential election this past Wednesday.
1: Votes ...in the world's biggest single-day election. More than 200 million of the country's 270 million people were eligible to cast a ballot. The leading candidate for Indonesia's presidency will be hoping it's third time lucky as millions of voters go to the
0: polls. In the Indonesia's defense minister Prabowo Subianto who served as the commander of Indonesia's special forces when the country was under a dictatorship previously, declared victory after receiving a reported 60% of the vote in a three-way contest. Official results aren't expected for a few weeks, but Subianto is expected to take office in October. So we've done uh, various country reports before, and Indonesia is one country I've yet to address. So um, yeah, let's just dive in. Adam, I wanted to first ask, what kind of structural economic conditions do archipelago nations face? Indonesia is obviously a collection of islands scattered across a a vast swath of the Pacific. Are there any common economic characteristics that island archipelago nations like Indonesia face?
1: Uh, Yeah, I mean, I think it's important to start just by acknowledging how radically sui generis Indonesia is. I mean, it's astonishing to kind of categorize it along with any other country seems to me always a bit of a mistake. As you say, 270 million people, that's the fourth largest country in the world, the third largest democracy, as you said, spread over 17,000 plus islands, the precise number of islands in Indonesia depends on how you count coral reefs and small sandbars. But Everyone agrees it's somewhere in that kind of scale. That means that it is, has more islands than Japan. It has twice as many islands as the Philippines at least it 's completely different from you know smaller Pacific island countries where you know the eleven small Pacific island member countries of the World Bank, for instance, the likes of Fiji, Kiribati, and so on i mean those eleven countries between them have six hundred and forty inhabited islands so Indonesia is it's just wildly more complex, I think, than virtually any other country society nation state in the world it's It's sort of staggering culturally speaking, this creates enormous diversity right because islands islands have had this kind of weird history in terms of transport because before the advent of modern road and rail transport, the best way of getting around was by water, certainly moving heavy goods. And so Indonesia you know, bursts into history as a massively important intersection of many trade routes between the major continents. It's hugely interconnected. It is the Spice Islands. This is what European exploration was directed towards finding. When we talk about the Indies in the early modern or the medieval periods, we're talking about Indonesia, not so much what we think of as modern India. But that... Structure also means that it's just massively diverse in cultural time and terms. So 700 living languages are spoken in this country of 278 million people across 17,000 islands. 700 languages. 10% of all living languages in the world are spoken in Indonesia. And it's not by accident. It's because of the fragmentation created by... The separation of these islands the standard language which most people speak for business purposes is malay or uh, um, well, indonesian which is a standardized version of malay but plurilingualism is absolutely the norm i think in complex complex societies like this javanese is the most common indigenous language that's spoken but it's only spoken by 31 percent of the population and after that it's sundanese which is uh spoken by 15 percent of the population so it's uh I think the fundamental challenge of modern compact state organization in spaces like this is in geographies like this is very hard to to uh, overestimate like it's it's a fundamentally different challenge from organizing i don't know France or the united continental United States, where ultimately you build a railway and you connect the things up you can't do that in Indonesia in the same way and now of course, Indonesia is threatened by climate change and by sea level rise in a way that uh, compact continental or just standard landlocked states, of course, aren't. And right now, by 2100, they expect to lose between 92 and 100 islands. Now, you might say they have 17,000. What's the problem? Like This isn't going to be an issue. But the key issue for Indonesia is that Recognized islands demarcate the territorial boundaries of Indonesia in a way they don't for a landlocked state. So it's only under the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea that all of the watery space between Indonesia's islands counts as Indonesia. Right? Because much of what we think of as the territory of Indonesia is actually water, but open water between islands. So as islands sink underwater, the risk is that Indonesia literally loses its territorial integrity because to count as part of Indonesia, water has to be between two islands no further than 100 miles apart. Once you lose one of those islands, all of a sudden the territorial integrity of Indonesia is in doubt. It's really extraordinary to think about this. So Indonesia is now one of the island nations pushing hard for sea level independent boundary definitions to be established it's really it's a mind-blowing kind of concept one of the first pieces i wrote for foreign policy was about the, the you know a world we're entering in which the literally the future of states is in doubt now that's only the case for the smaller archipelagic um nations but what's at stake for indonesia is the the current boundary and integrity of the state will shift potentially as key markers in the ocean submerge, because they only count if they're above the waterline. If they go below the waterline, you can no longer count them as a marker point in the definition of the boundaries of, of Indonesia. So it's a really mind-bending set of problems which don't affect non-waterine, non-island-based um, societies.
0: So as I mentioned, Prabowo Subianto is the presumed winner of the election, which means he is the presumed successor to Joko Widodo, the current president who has served two terms and thus was prohibited from running again for re-election. Joko Widodo took office making some big promises about Indonesia's economic development. And I'm curious what you make of his legacy. I mean, how has he executed on those big promises he made about Indonesia's future?
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting question. I mean, if you look at the simple growth record since he Jokowi took office in twenty fourteen, it's four point two percent per annum and five point one percent per annum if you take the pandemic years out, and that's you know a substantial growth record by any standard other than the Chinese standard. It's a rapid rate of growth over over such a, a long period of time. He made huge promises, above all on infrastructure. But I think it's important to get a clear understanding of the historical backdrop to this and crucially to understand the existential political economic shock delivered to Indonesia by the 1997 Asian financial crisis and the subsequent upheavals, also political and all, you know, Indonesian democracy, Indonesia's sense of itself as a modern, forward-moving economy, was put in question by a shock which took GDP down by thirteen percent. And Jokowi's promise to achieve a high growth rate was set against that backdrop. And in fact, the growth rate he aimed for was was seven percent, which was what Indonesia was growing out just before the Indonesian the the fi- Asian financial crisis. And he's fallen short of that target. The other big promise was infrastructure investment. And again, this relates to this trajectory, this traumatized trajectory. So before the Asian financial crisis, uh, infrastructure investment in Indonesia was running at about um, 9% of GDP and plunged to as little as 2% of GDP by 2001. And so restoring public investment, and he's effectively tripled its share of public spending in Indonesia over the time of his office, is in a sense redressing the damage done by that massive deviation to Indonesia's growth path. Concretely, what this is above all meant is very large scale spending on roads, because as we were saying, like for this mountainous, complex island society, or this fantastically complex nation, internal infrastructure and transport is an absolutely crucial issue. He's also, of course, proposed building a new capital city to replace Jakarta, which has just become impossible to live in and is sinking into the ocean. The road construction numbers are impressive. Um, We're talking about 2,000 kilometres of toll road, approximately, Um, thousands of kilometers of uh, regional roads and tens of thousands of kilometers of roads for the rural communities which still dominate a large part of Indonesian life. So I think that's where we're really seeing the the payoff is in you know a modernization of indonesia in all different in all different directions the construction of new airports of dams of major bridges it's a kind of china light if you like version of modernization with a heavy chinese footprint at the level of engineering and construction going on across indonesia the big issues are i think for many people in and have been in the run up to this election the extent of corruption that goes hand in hand with this Indonesia is, by most international rankings, an extremely corrupt place to do business. And Jokowi, though he is barred from running again for office, has effectively secured through his son the possibility of his dynasty continuing. The son is running as vice president and the constitutional court, which had... Jacobi's, I think, brother-in-law acting as a supreme justice ruled in favor of the possibility of lowering the age such that Jacobi's son would be eligible for high office. So I think one of the anxieties is that this growth has gone hand in hand with a kind of crony capitalism that in the long run may betoken a a subsequent slowdown in, in Indonesia's development.
0: So what is the balance right now in Indonesia's economy between exporting commodities versus developing higher value industries? I mean, beyond commodities, what exactly does Indonesia excel at? I mean, when you think of Indonesia historically, from a European point of
1: view, you think of colonial plantation agriculture and oil development. You know, this was a Dutch colony which which fed the development of companies oil companies in the west throughout its history. Indonesia still is a major exporter of commodities, coal briquettes, palm oil, various types of um, steel product, exporting a lot of it to the sort of societies and economies that import raw materials on bulk. So China, notably, takes a huge volume of Indonesian exports. It's fair to say that that is balanced in Indonesia's case also by manufactured goods, non-commodity exports, vehicles, electrical machinery, footwear and so on. But again, to understand the urgency, if you like, of this modernization program in Indonesia, you have to understand how Indonesia stacks up and compares with other societies and economies in Southeast Asia. And that's really the the benchmark. And the fact of the matter is, is that Indonesia is lagging far, far behind the Malaysias, the Thailands, the Philippines, let alone the Chinas of this world. So over the period from 1980 to 2020, Worldwide trade grew sevenfold um, at an annual rate of about 5% per annum over that 40-year period. Malaysia, Thailand, and Philippines increased the total volume of their exports by a factor of 12. Indonesia barely managed a threefold increase. So it lags far, far behind its, its neighbors. The share of trade in Indonesian GDP... Since that is the combination of imports and exports, since the shock of the late 1990s in the Asian financial crisis, the share of trade in Indonesian GDP fell from 72% in 2000 to 33% in 2020. So there's the sense in which Indonesia has actually been going backwards, or at least in relative terms, it has become less and less really engaged in the global economy, even though it is a major exporter of of key raw materials and some manufactured goods, the share of manufacturing in Indonesia's GDP fell from 31% in 2002, when Indonesia was a classic low-wage manufacturing hub, to 19% in 2021. So Indonesia is de-industrializing, de-globalizing in a period where the rest of Southeast Asia and China, of course, is massively accelerating, and the two things are interconnected in that it is China which has gobbled up a large slice of the potential export market, and Indonesia has not found a place for itself in those value chains to the same extent. And I think that this is the this is what hangs over the kind of Indonesian story. It's a, it's at some levels a great success story of democratization and of of modest prosperity and development over time. These growth rates are real but they are not following the sort of Asian tigers model of East Asia or even their immediate neighbours. And and that's, as it were, the question going forward. It's not uncommon for a society as large as Indonesia to be relatively less globalised. Those sorts of shares of imports and exports and GDP are typical of really big societies like the United States or China or India or even Japan. Um, but for a society at Indonesia's level of income to have such a low level of, as it were, globalization at a time when its peers in the region have gone the other way. This is what really asks the questions.
0: Okay, we're going to take a quick break here for now, but we will be back to continue talking about Indonesia. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you're anything like me, you're juggling a lot of things in your life. Work, kids, any semblance of a social life. And if there's one thing you wish for, it's more time. Maybe you've heard the advice that I've gotten, which is prioritize. Decide on the things that are really important. Well, how are you supposed to do that exactly? I think that's a fair response. And I think... That's where therapy comes in. It can help you find out what matters to you so you can do more of it. Therapy is not just for people who have experienced major trauma. It's for people who have experienced life. Life is hard, we all need help. The only difference is some people are willing to ask for it. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It is entirely online, it's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. All you got to do is fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. So learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P pcom elpcom Slash ones, twos. So I'm here to talk about Crash Plan, which is a provider of cloud-based backup services for your computer. As always, when you support our sponsors, you're also supporting us, but you are also helping yourself out. Go to CrashPlan.com/slash ones to sign up for a free trial and take advantage of one of their limited time buy one get one offers. So What does CrashPlan do? Well, their work in the world is to protect your work in the world. You know, just ask yourself, how much are your ideas worth? Whether it's a term paper you're working on, or a book, or a business plan, or an audio file, like the one I'm recording right now. Whatever it is, you've worked hard to create it, and now you can protect all your work with an unlimited backup and recovery solution with options for everyone from solo creators to growing businesses. Plan works efficiently in the background while you work encrypting and sending all your new or changed files up to their secure cloud every 15 minutes. When something happens to your file, whether it's a hard drive crash or your cat knocked a cup of coffee onto your laptop or even just an accidental file deletion, that happens too. Either way, your file's are just a few clicks away. CrashPlan makes it simple to restore some or all of your data. And with unlimited version retention, CrashPlan can also be your ultimate rewind button. Don't let data disasters slow you down. CrashPlan has your back and keeps you moving. So go to CrashPlan.com slash ones, O-N-E-S, to sign up for a Free trial and take advantage of one of their limited time buy one get one offers for ones and twos listeners exclusively. That's CrashPlan.com slash ones. Back up better with Crash Plan. So in addition to being the world's fourth largest country, third largest democracy, as we mentioned, Indonesia is the world's largest Muslim country. And I'm curious what role Indonesia plays in the global Islamic economy? I mean, I suppose that presupposes the question of what the global Islamic economy consists of, but does Indonesia have a special role embedded in that Islamic economy?
1: Well, the the global Islamic economy is actually kind of a buzzword. It's a thing. You can look it up and find it. there There are banks and agencies that track it. And I think there's two different ways of defining it. One is... Countries with large Muslim populations, starting with countries which are overwhelmingly predominantly monopolistically Muslim, like Saudi Arabia, uh, but also the Turkey, the Emirates, Malaysia, and then Indonesia comes in that rank. But if you look at the rankings of the Islamic economy... 15th, you'll find South Africa and and the UK with large Muslim populations with very substantial economic footprints. So one way of defining the global Islamic economy is in terms of where Muslim people are and their economic activity. And in those kind of rankings, Indonesia comes in the top four of national societies which are overwhelmingly Muslim and have substantial economies. And it's Up there in that list of Saudi, Turkey, Emirates, Malaysia, Indonesia. There, it's in that group. Sheer size, relative rapid economic growth, it's undeniable. The other way of defining the global Islamic economy is to look at um, specific niches and sectors which serve the religious needs and cultural and social needs of the Islamic population and look at those sectors. And so that would be halal food, cosmetics and pharma. Um, It would be modest fashion. So according to the um, modesty norms of conservative Islam and then Islamic finance. And those are really big markets and Malaysia plays a substantial role in them. Just to give you a sense of the scale, the global Muslim spending on halal food and beverages is, you know, between 1.5 and heading towards 1.7, 1.8 trillion dollars a year. If you add in the food, the pharmaceuticals, cosmetics and modest fashion to that and maybe travel as well, including the, the hajj, you're up in the $2.3 to $2.4 trillion bound. Now, the global economy is $100 trillion, but this is a segment that's non-trivial from the point of view of businesses which are operative in it. Islamic finance, we've spoken about before on the show you know, is a is a finance business which has assets in the trillions again, like so currently on the balance sheets of Islamic finance institutions, we're talking about, you know, maybe four trillion dollars, something like that. So not world bestriding dominance in the global financial system, but a non-trivial element in it, and especially regionally in middle income countries, this is, you know, this is big money. Indonesia's position within this, above all, appears to be in the in the halal food segment where where halal food exports basically poultry i think play a non trivial part in indonesian agricultural economy but that's how it fits in and this is a this is an important context in which to see the significance of what indonesia does along with malaysia and then of course from there stretching westwards the the big question mark here is as another country we should maybe do an episode about in the not too distant future which is pakistan which is gigantic in population and in much, much more fragile economic state than any of these leaders of the Islamic global world
0: uh, economy. Yeah, Pakistan obviously also had an election of its own. So yeah, we should turn to Pakistan at some point. I imagine it'll only be a a question of, of time. But yeah, I guess to finish off with Indonesia, you know, I'm curious what Indonesia reveals to us about industrial policy and its relationship. To globalization. Uh, you know, Obviously, industrial policy is the kind of economic buzzword of our specific era, everyone talking about subsidizing domestic industries. And I'm curious if Indonesia is benefiting from types of protectionism. Is that an important part of its economic model? Or does Indonesia want and need a free trade agreement with the region and even with the United States specifically. Uh, obviously, there was talk of a free trade agreement at the end of the Obama administration, the TPP that ended up uh, not going through. So, yeah, where does Indonesia stand on, on those questions? So Indonesia, I think, shows both the sort of the bright and
1: the dark, the shadow and the, the sunshine of of the new era of economic policy. Because, I mean, liberal critics of Indonesia's development would point out that as far as ordinary Indonesians are concerned, their everyday lives are constrained by a mass of non-tariff barriers that imports, for instance, are required to be channeled through particular ports as a hugely elaborate licensing system. The net effect of this is that the price of even basic commodities like rice is, roughly speaking, twice what it is in a more open economy, peer economy, you might think like Vietnam, where the cost of living is as a result substantially lower. So there is, as it were, a legacy of import restriction in Indonesia, which points to a substitution strategy, which points to this relatively, not idiosyncratic, but divergent path from the trend of globalization in much of the rest of Southeast Asia. That's on the one side. But the sort of quote unquote protectionism, which Indonesia has become famous for and has attracted attention worldwide and caused considerable debate, interest but also controversy, is not restrictions on imports, but restrictions on exports. Because the the status of Indonesia as a commodity exporting country is on the one hand a boon, of course, it's natural wealth from which one can profit, but the question is who profits and on what terms, and what does it do to the rest of the economy? And the concern has been for many, many years now that uh, being inserted into the global value chain as a commodity provider is not the recipe for long-run economic growth. And so starting in 2014, in the current incarnation, the first inquiries into this go back, in fact, to the aftermath of that Asian financial crisis that they keep coming back to as like a key moment in Indonesia's development. And what that was followed in pretty short order By the explosion of the global commodity boom driven by China's growth in the early 2000s, this absolutely epic, historically unprecedented surge in Asian economic growth driven by China. And that sparked, unsurprisingly, a conversation in Indonesia, as it did in Latin America. We once, we had a couple of shows about Latin America where we talked about extractivismo, this image of national growth being driven by resource extraction. Well, Indonesia had its equivalent conversation about that because they they produce all of this coal, bauxite, copper, you name it, nickel, tin, the whole works. And in 2014, they began an experiment with restricting the export of raw commodities in favor of requiring processing to take place in Indonesia so that only refined commodities can be exported now, the successful experiment of that has been in nickel, where from 2020 onwards, really, it became increasingly impossible to export nickel from Indonesia directly. And as a result, the exports of uh, nickel content products have surged by a factor of 10, 10x to 30 billion in 2022-2023 from a figure 90% lower than that 10 years before. And this has been a been a very considerable success, and it has triggered very large-scale investment, foreign direct investment in Indonesia from outside, including conversations with uh, leading Korean, Chinese manufacturers, Teslas, so on, And what Indonesia is riding on here is the need for nickel, for EVs, for for batteries, for the electrification of everything that's going to drive the decarbonisation of the global energy system in coming years. And this has been a very inspiring model, has struck many people as as an obvious step forward. And the Indonesian government, I think, is very likely to consider extending this to several other commodities. In fact, they've already begun to do so for bauxite, for copper, uh, for gold, potentially for tin. And the question has got to be how far this can actually be generalised. I mean, one element of this is that the Europeans have brought a lawsuit against Indonesia in the WTO, alleging that this discriminated against their mining interests and against the free trading goods. And the WTO actually um, approved the the European Union's um, suit. The European Union has imposed punitive sanctions on Indonesian exports, but Indonesia immediately appealed the WTO ruling. And the problem is that under Donald Trump, the United States sabotaged the WTO's appeal process, and the Biden administration has not seen fit to repair that. So the WTO doesn't really have an appeals process. There are twenty-nine other appeals in the works, and the WTO ruling doesn't come into force until the appeal has been ruled on. And so there's no prospect of that anytime soon. The real issue for Indonesia, I think, is whether or not less the legality of this and its consistency with WTO norms is more the question of their market power. And in nickel, they're responsible for about 50% of world output. So if if the Indonesians say these are the new rules for nickel, manufacturers all over the world who want the Indonesian nickel say, okay, how high do we have to jump? What do we have to do? And the Indonesian government has been extremely cooperative in offering tax breaks and various types of incentives for investment to build factories in Indonesia. What the Indonesian government would like most of all is to do a strategic raw materials deal with the Biden administration or with an American administration amenable to this kind of thing. This is the kind of deal they would like to do in which there is a kind of pairing of indonesia's raw materials with processing of some of it in indonesia and export to the rest of the world they would like a kind of managed trade model what they de facto get because no that idea has been touted it was touted when kamala harris made a visit to indonesia in 2023 it's not gone anywhere but what they de facto end up with more often than not is essentially Chinese manufacturers coming in and saying, okay, fine, what do we have to do, right? We'll build a, a, you know, a nickel smelter, a bauxite smelter to make aluminium in Indonesia, that's fine. Give us the tax breaks that we need and we'll do it. And by the way, we'll bring our own personnel in to run this because obviously we would want expert people doing this. And so the other question being posed within Indonesia is who actually benefits from this? So those are like the three big question marks hanging over the Indonesian export control regime is, A, can you make it consistent with any kind of global trading system? The Europeans are not cooperative. Maybe the Americans will be. Who knows? The next is, do you have the market power to make this stick in any commodities other than nickel? Tin is another option, apparently. But in bauxite, in aluminium, for instance, the the Indonesians just don't have that much leverage, ditto for copper. So it's very hard to imagine them really being able to push that very far. And then the third question is, who benefits? Is there really a technology transfer? And what is the risk further down the line that with the development of battery technology, for instance, if you make nickel more expensive, this will incentivize you know, innovation, which takes us away from nickel-based batteries. And so it's a precarious balance that OPEC, for instance, the other great producer, export control based cartel has managed for, you know, half a century now. And it's a very, very difficult balance to pull off for one big country. So maybe for nickel, given Indonesia's current position, hard to see how it generalizes. But it's something that you're going to see, I think, whatever Indonesian government emerges pursuing because it's seen as a very powerful Symbol of the aspirations of Indonesia to break out of what is otherwise a rather sort of disappointing and in some ways potentially quite menacing situation of being inserted as a highly populous, relatively underdeveloped raw material producer into commodity chains commanded by other people.
0: That's fascinating. I'm I'm surprised we actually haven't heard more in general In the public hasn't heard more about the Indonesian model. I mean, one hears about all these other countries, but this seems like a very specific model that that Indonesia has come up with for itself with its own lessons, as you pointed out. But uh, we do need to end our conversation here for now, but we will be back, as always, next week. Ones and Twos is written and edited by me, Cameron Abadi, along with Adam Twos. It's produced by Claudia Tatey, Laura Rosbrow Tellum, Rob Sachs, and Dan Efron. This show is made possible through the support of foreign policy readers. If you're interested in news and analysis from around the world, consider subscribing. Listeners to Ones and Twos even get a 15% discount. Just go to foreignpolicy.com slash subscribe and use the promo code twos at checkout. That's T-O-O-Z-E. And listeners, as always, we love getting your feedback. You can leave voice messages on the Ones and Twos homepage on foreignpolicy.com or email us, podcast at foreignpolicy.com, or you can tweet us, that's at OnesandTwosPod. Thanks very much for listening, and we'll be back in your feed next week.